Mark, and we've been looking at, particularly over the last several weeks, the last week of Jesus' life. He's been going in and out of Jerusalem and the temple and causing much discomfort, uh, anger, questions uh, in the minds of the religious leaders there. And this morning, we continue as Jesus tells a parable to these religious leaders and to the crowd that's also gathered there. The, the, the parable is about an owner and his vineyard, and so that's the title of the message, The Owner and the Vineyards. And we'll be looking at Mark chapter 12, the first 12 verses of that chapter. But before we go there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the opportunity you give us to come, to be encouraged, to be connected. God, we also thank you for the songs we sing, the truth of the lyrics, to rehearse your goodness, to worship you. And now, God, we come to the part of the service where we open your word, and we ask that by your spirit you teach us in all wisdom and all truth, that you give us clarity about what we read and what we hear. And then, God, we pray by your spirit that you empower us and enable us to live out that which you teach us in our response to you. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you, that they would hear from the Lord and respond to him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 12. Or I'm going to read the first 12 verses. If you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower, and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time... He sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so many with, and with so many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send... A beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. They were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. At the end of chapter 12, Jesus is asked about John's baptism, and he has three groups of people there, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, which make up the Sanhedrin. And they were against him. And Jesus asked them a question that they couldn't answer. And now he gives them this prophetic parable that contains questions that concludes with a question that Jesus himself will answer. 
Now, this parable is usually referred to as the parable of the tenants. It's found in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. These first two verses of Isaiah chapter 5 sound familiar to what we just read. Listen to it. Isaiah talks about singing. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Now, Isaiah goes on in verses 3 through 7 and talks about the prophetic destruction of the vineyard. And so Jesus is reaching back to Isaiah and pulling it towards the New Testament right now in front of the religious leaders. And the reason he does this is because the religious leaders would have recognized what Isaiah was talking about. And I always love how Jesus talks about the Old Testament. Do you think Jesus knew anything about the Old Testament? All the Old Testament pointed to him. So this imagery, this this parable, this metaphor, the, the, the language, the pictures would have all been familiar to these religious leaders that he was speaking to. Palestine was a, a land full of vineyards. All around them, they would see these pictures. And just as a side note, vineyards were the choice areas, the choice land to produce the best and most fertile crops. Now this parable is also found in Matthew 21 and Luke chapter 20, and the overriding in all the cases of the parable is that you see this repeated message, repeated messengers, increased injuries, and as a consequence, this increased hardening of the heart and rebellion. And the strong point of the parable is that Jesus is accusing the spiritual leaders of Israel of being future murderers of the Messiah and was doing this in the presence of the crowd. And so he was bringing to their attention this crucial question, what are you going to do with me? It's a great question. Now, in this story, we see different characters and places that I want us to get our head around so we can better understand it. Now, the planter or the vineyard owner is God. The vineyard that they're talking about is the nation of Israel. And then there's the vine growers, which are the religious leaders. And then there's servants that were sent, that they were faithful in telling the truth of God. And then there was the son, who, of course, is Jesus. And then there's the others who we'll see as the Gentiles. So that's kind of the picture and parable that Jesus is starting to tell. Israel, the religious leaders know, had been set apart by God and proclaimed as a city on a hill, a light on a lampstand, to be the one to be a light into the nations. They knew the role that they had been given to them by God. And Jesus is calling them to task on their role. Now, the first thing we see in this passage is the truths of God in verses 1 and 2 and verse 9. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it, dug a vat under the pine wine press, built a tower, 
and rented out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. Verse 9 says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Now, the first thing I want us to point out is this, is that God is generously thorough. How many of you have ever met someone that is really detail-driven? Like, detail-driven. You know what I'm talking about? Now, we usually know detail-driven people because we've also been around not-so-detail-driven people. We've described those kind of people as big-picture people and little-picture people, little people. Maybe in some kind of leadership or business world, visionaries and strategic people. Now, sometimes, right now, I can see it in your minds. You're going, I'm this or I'm that. She's this, she's that. But wh whatever, I can see it. Just as a side note, one can't function really, really well without the other. So some of us can get on our high horse and go, well, I, I see the big picture. While the other one's in the side making sure that the big, big picture is actually realized. Now what's really incredible is that Jesus is both perfectly well. Because Jesus is the big picture and he's the detail. In verses 1 of chapter 12, he shows us a clear picture of who initiated the vineyard and its details. A man planted a vineyard. Remember, the man in this parable is God. And then God, what did he do? He put a hedge of protection, a, a wall around the vineyard. Sometimes you've heard people pray, at least I did when I was growing up, that they would have a hedge of protection, maybe for a travel or for this event or for that thing. A hedge of protection. The hedge of protection was not by accident. It was intentional. It was purposeful. And it was necessary. Now, what does a hedge of protection communicate? When a hedge of protection or a wall is built, it proves that what is on the inside of the parameters of the hedge had value, had worth, was important, and needed to be treated with significance. And the worth or value merited the hedge of protection. Now, conversely, we do not protect things we don't deem valuable. And we create more protection as their value goes up. Now, examples can come to mind like the wall around Fort Knox. Probably not going to go visit there just any old time, right? Just can't walk right through. But your backyard? Probably so. How many of you have ever had these cyber walls, these firewalls that pop up? They're fun, right? 
But there's security walls, even online, to protect our bank accounts and our credit cards and our personal data. And the more important that data is, the, the, the more intense the security goes up. So let me ask this, what walls or hedge of protection would have the greatest construction of significance in your life? Family? Kids? Parents are going, eh. Possessions? Your money? How about your phone? The hedge was an important protection of the, vine, uh, the vineyard. And this shows, this is a parallel, this is the picture, it's what Isaiah was saying, that we are the beloved of God. That we have value and worth. And because of the value and worth that God puts on us, He puts a hedge of protection around us. It wasn't like a checklist for the building plan. It was a motivation of His heart to show us we're worth protecting. Now, for the religious leaders, they were hearing that God put up this hedge of protection to protect what was inside from outside influences, from other nations coming in and compromising the Israeli nation. But there's another detail. It says that they dug a vat under the wine press. Now, these were two stones. They, they hewned out a hole in one, and then it poured down into the one that was lower. And in the top one, they would put a bunch of grapes and they would stomp on the grapes. How many of you have ever seen Lucille Ball? <laughs> Don't show your age too quickly. Stomp on the grapes, and then it would pour down into the other stone vat. This was a provision of the owner to the vineyard so the people could harvest it properly and profitably and efficiently. Notice what else the owner does. The owner built a tower. It was a watchtower. It was a tower, probably 15 feet tall, 6 feet square, where people would go up and watch. They would get above so they could see further and warn quicker. Do you start to see the picture that the owner of the vineyard has put things in place to protect the value of the vineyard? Why? Now, remember the plan of the farmer or the landlord. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. The vineyard owner takes great care of every detail to assure that his vineyard would be fruitful while he was away. He planted a seed, he built a fence. He dug out a pit for wine. He built a watchtower. The vineyard was equipped. The people were equipped with everything they needed to do and accomplish what God had called them to do. Now think with me for a second. Jesus pulled from Isaiah. Now we pull from Mark to our current situation. Doesn't that describe the God of our lives? Hasn't God given us everything we need to do what he's called us to do? 
2 Peter 1.3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. The religious leaders listening to Jesus would have understood, yeah, yeah, we, we understand this. We understand the thorough generosity of God. C.S. Lewis said this, The limit of our giving is to be the limit of our ability to give. Just as a reminder, God has no limit to his giving. Nobody is coming to God and saying, I think that's enough. You don't need to give anymore. It is God who decides when too much or too little. Now, as we follow the story, as we start to understand the parable, we have to conclude that the vineyard was actually producing crop because the owner sent people to get some of the harvest. But God also is patient. Verse 2 says, At harvest time he sent a slave to the vineyards in order to receive some of the produce from the vineyard from the vine growers. Now, how many times... Did the master send a servant to the vineyard once? Twice? Three times? It says many times the master sent the servant to the vineyards. Now let me just ask you, what would you have done after the first one? The second one. The third one. After the many of them, how many of you are patient people? 2 Kings 17, 13. Again and again, the Lord has sent his prophets and seers to warn both Israel and Judah. Turn from all your evil ways. Obey my commands and laws, which are contained in the whole law that I commanded your ancestors, and which I gave through my servants. 2 Chronicles 24, 19. The Lord sent prophets to bring them back to him, but the people would not listen. The owner sent multiple servants over and over. And notice this, too, about God's patience. He didn't demand all of it. He demanded, commanded some of it when? During harvest time when they had it. He didn't come to them at a different time when there was no crop. He came during harvest time. He didn't expect them to do what he had called them to do in a time when they couldn't do it. He treated them with patience and kindness and didn't put more on them than they could do. Now let me just stop and ask a question. Has God exercised patience and kindness with you? Psalm 86, 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Is God a God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances? And if we need proof of that, we can go to the Scripture and ask Jonah, David, Paul, or we can ask the people around us. God is 
patient. And God never expects more from us than what he has already provided for us to give back to him, like the harvest. But as one commentator said, we need to be careful. We must not continue in sin and rebellion, disregarding God's commands, only banking on his patience. Why? Because God is also the judge. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers. One commentator said, we may be allowed by God to take advantage of his generosity and appreciate his patience, but in the end, justice and judgment do come from God. 2 Chronicles 36, 15 and 16, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them, for he had compassion on his people and his temple. But the people mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and there was no other remedy. God will not be robbed of his glory. And God's plans will not be frustrated by the wickedness of men. Sin will not forever go unpunished. In the end, God will act. And we can look at our culture and think, well, we have a hard time believing that. Because we can camp out in the grace of God and the goodness of God, and we can become entitled of the things of God. But we have to remember that God, God is also the one who will act and judge. Now put yourself in the, the sandals of the religious leaders. What are they hearing? That God's going to come and deal with them. That God will come and destroy the vine growers, it says. And who are the vine growers? Religious leaders. And Jesus, 40 years later, did exactly that when Jerusalem fell in 70 A.D. And the city fell and came under captivity. And the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of them were carted out of Jerusalem in chains. We can believe that God will act according to how he says he's going to act and do what he says he's going to do, even today. This parable also reveals the truths of man in verses 3 through 5. They took him, the slave that was sent, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent another slave and wounded him in the head. And treated him shamefully, and he sent another one. They killed that one. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. Now there's some things from this parable I think we can learn from not only religious leaders, but I think apply to ourselves. And the first one is this. We have within us the capacity to endanger ourselves by exalting ourselves. Do you remember the story in Matthew where there was a, a choice between where to build your house, on the foundation rock or on the sand? And the man built his house on the sand, and he thought he knew best, and the storm came, verse 27, and great was the fall of it. Who did these renters, these vine growers, think they were? Really, who did they think they were? Their foundation, their lives were built on themselves. Their house, if you will, was their religion and their identity. 
It was all based on themselves. But more important than that question is, who did they think Jesus was? There's some reasons why vine growers thought that they could enter into possessing the vineyard. They must have thought, well, the owner is too far away, he's too disconnected, or he's just dead and out of the picture. So I'm going to take his place. And here's the application. Some people still think that they can act against God and get away with it. They think that God is too far away. He's too far removed. Or in some ways, maybe he's even dead in their minds to have any kind of influence in their lives today. But God is very much alive. And I'm convinced two things happen in a person's life in regards to God and sin and punishment. The first one is they begin to think that they know better than God. Now, now we won't say this out loud because it makes us look really ridiculous. If I know better than God. Nobody would ever say that, necessarily. But we think it. We reason like it. And then we begin to live like it. And we can exalt ourselves in our own mind to a place that we were never intended to be exalted. What does Scripture say? All through Scripture, humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself. It never says exalt yourself, exalt yourself, exalt yourself. The second reason we exalt ourselves is because what, what God gives us is not good enough. Or what we want, or we want something better. And somehow we subconsciously look at God and say, seriously, this is all you got? This is it? Again, we would never say it out loud. But sometimes we look at the blessings and the gifts of God and say, yeah, I guess it's all right. One commentator said this, All that God did and gave for the vineyard wasn't appreciated and treated as a gift, but was perverted into a justified possession, an exaltation that resulted in endangerment. God, I deserve better than this. There's another thing that we see about these religious leaders that arrogance leads to entitlement. Just a question. Do we live in an entitled society? Do you think that the church can slip into the mindset of being entitled? These vine growers were greedy. They were self-centered. They didn't get what they thought they should have gotten. Why? Because they didn't respect the landowner at all. They loved themselves more than they loved God. And remember, the landowner wasn't requiring all of it. He was only requiring some. And they didn't want to share with the one who gave them all they needed to get what they got. In our arrogance, we begin to protect and defend the wrong thing and the wrong person. This was a, an ultimate act of disrespect. 
And the last thing we see is that we can lose what God has graciously given to us. Verse 9 says, well, the, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. In Matthew's account of this passage, it shows that the, the religious leaders actually answer that question. What will the, what will the owner do? They answer, well, they'll give the vineyard to somebody else. And Jesus said, you're exactly right. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Verse 45, they understood that he was speaking about them. The religious leaders heard it, understood it. They got the picture, they made the connections. But in their head is where it stayed. It never transformed their hearts. It reminds me of the passage in James where he talks about looking into a mirror. Listen to this. For if you listen to the word and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. Anybody look at themselves in the mirror this morning? Anybody forget what you look like? Verse 24. You see yourself. Walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you've heard, then God will bless you for doing it. These guys were not just looking into one of those mirrors. It was like one of those magnifying mirrors, you know, there's magnifying, like you can see the back of your head type mirrors. Because they were looking at Jesus himself, the perfect lawgiver, The perfect mirror, if you will. And they walked away unchanged. And God gave the vineyard to someone else. Someone else was the Gentiles. Romans 11.30, once you Gentiles were rebels, were rebels against God, but when the Jews refused his mercy, God was merciful to you instead. Now at this part, the religious leaders knew exactly what he was talking about, and that's when their anger really started to burn. You're going to take my stuff and give it to the Gentiles? If God does not receive the rent from them, he will have it from another people. Remember what Jesus says in Luke 19, if the stones do not, if you don't cry out and worship me, the stones will. God's glory will not be thwarted by the sins of men. And here's the truth of Jesus. We saw in verses 7 and 8 that he knew what he had come to do. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. They were talking, Jesus was talking about himself. In essence, he was asking them an underlying question. I'm here. What are you going to do with me? And the question is for us. What are we going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? The second thing we see about Jesus is that he knows who he is. He sees himself as the Son of God. He hears and remembers his baptism when a voice from the heavens came out and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And because he knew who he was as a son, he lived that out as a servant, completely understanding of his identity. And then Jesus says a quote from Psalm chapter 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Now, this word cornerstone kind of has two applications. A cornerstone, for those of you who have built or ever built anything, there is a stone on the corner who 
that serves as a level foundation and a, a point where it keeps everything else level. If the cornerstone is out of sync, then everything else falls apart. But there's also another application of this, and that's a, uh, a capstone or a keystone. And a keystone is an arch. It looks kind of like this. How many of you have ever seen these? Now, that middle stone right there this arrow is pointing to is considered the capstone or the keystone or, in Greek translation, the cornerstone. Now, if this keystone or this capstone is removed, what happens? Everything falls apart, right? It's the same principle in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. All these things will be held together. But seek not the kingdom of God first and all of it will fall apart. And just as a side note, none of us here, none of us here were ever created to be the capstone. We do not have what it takes to hold everything together. Only Jesus does. So what was the conclusion? Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they went away. In fact, they went away to scheme up a plan to murder him. I want to leave you with a few closing questions to think through this week. In what ways do the goodness, grace, and character of God motivate and move you? Are there any here this morning that would disagree that God has been good and gracious to us? And if so, what does that do inside of us? to know that we're of value to God, that, that we're protected, that, that, that we're watched constantly, that we've been given everything needed by God to live with and for God. What's our response to the thorough generosity of God? Have we treated the message or the messengers of truth? Has it been an attitude of stewardship or entitlement? Has it been an attitude of arrogance or humility? Hoarding or giving it away? As you've been listening this morning, maybe there's some things that, that God is showing you where, where you're pointing out where maybe you're exalting yourself in places you shouldn't be exalted. Or maybe there's areas of your life where you're, there's an arrogance that you know better than God. And the final question is this, is Jesus your cornerstone, your keystone, your capstone? It's a great question. What are you doing with Jesus? Will we, before him, stay exalted? Stay arrogant? Cast him away? There's a wonderful invitation from Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, where he says this, Are you tired? Are you worn out? burned out on religion, he says this, come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Is Jesus the one who's holding it all together for you this morning? Let me pray for us.
God, as we think of this passage, there's so many different applications that may be stirring in our hearts and minds this morning. And we pray that you would settle those things and give us clarity to know how we are to respond to your word this morning. God, I thank you for being a gracious and generous and thorough God in our lives, providing for us and protecting us, not because of a checklist, but because you value us, that we have worth, that we are your beloved. So God, I pray that we respond not with self-entitlement or arrogance, but humility and a desire to give to you and live for you the way you want us to. Help us with all that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.